0: From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terran Form. You're
1: listening. You're listening to Terran Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is Hannah Cunningham.
0: My name is Lizzie Barron.
2: I'm Sonic Patel. And
3: I'm Sarah Chitsaz. This week, it's Terran a book club. We're talking about the classic that launched an environmental movement. 60 years ago, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring explored the dangers of pesticides and how humans are destroying our environment.
2: The book was an instant bestseller, a controversy, a catalyst for political action, and a revolution for the way we think about our relationship with nature.
0: 2022 marks the 60 year anniversary of the release of Silent Spring. Why was this book so important? And how relevant is Silent Spring to the modern ecological crises of the 20th and 21st century? Stay tuned for our discussion.
1: Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was co-written and produced in Treaty 6 territory in Miswitsiwisguigen, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papa's Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number One Thirty Six now South Edmonton.
2: The show was also co-written in Treaty 7 territory, the traditional territories of the Nitsitapi and the Blackfoot Confederacy, including the Siksika, Sika, the Bigani and Gainai Nations, the IRI Nakota of the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley Nations, and the Dene of the Sudna Nation. Southern Alberta is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3 at the confluence of the Bow and Elbow Rivers. This site was called Mokinsis by the Blackfoot and is more recently called the City of Calgary.
3: Not confined to history, these regions are also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understandings of the land you are on.
0: To understand the writing of Silent Spring, let's talk about the writer of Silent Spring herself. Rachel Carson started her career as a marine biologist and accepted a position in the US Bureau of Fisheries, where she helped write a weekly radio broadcast, educational pieces about aquatic life weekly radio broadcast. Sounds a little familiar.
1: Carson also started writing articles in magazines and newspapers, while her work evolved to include brochures for the public. Carson became the second woman ever to be hired for a full-time professional position. In
2: 1941, Carson's work on writing public pieces about the world under the sea culminated in the book Under the Sea Wind, which received critical acclaim but poor sales in its initial run. A decade later, Carson's next literary foray into the ocean was The Sea Around Us, which received both strong critical acclaim and was a bestseller for over a year.
3: Carson's Sea Trilogy ended in 1955 with The Edge of the Sea, cementing the author's success. Part of Carson's literary success was not just her excellent knowledge of the science but also her writing skill, something evidently carried over in Silent Spring.
1: Carson's
2: skepticism for pesticides developed as she saw the industry emerge, much of it being developed under military funding from World War II. Carson worked with the Audubon Naturalist Society, a conservation nonprofit that was concerned about the use of pesticides. Carson started assembling research done into the chemical impacts In 1962, Silent Spring would be published and, in many ways, would change the world. The excitement for the book was bolstered by serialization in The New Yorker prior to its publication.
3: So what's Silent Spring about? In the book, Carson highlights some of the dangers of pesticides and how they affect the environment and people. Carson talks about a variety of chemicals, which he poetically calls elixirs of death the title of chapter three. Many chemicals are discussed in the book, including the highly used DDT.
2: I think when we talk about some of the biggest takeaways from the book, especially considering the effect of pesticides, I think one of the most lasting is the idea of biomagnification or that pesticides increase in concentration as they move up the food web or the food chain. And, you know, I feel like in 1962 that might have been a concept that not many people were thinking about. When you think about how broadly we apply, you know, a dusting of pesticide, it feels like a little bit until you realize how much that can concentrate over time. And I think for many people that continues to remain a salient concept when we think about modern day pollutants and especially like microplastics or something.
1: I also was thinking about microplastics a lot I've been reading this book and yeah I think one of the standouts to me the scale in which pesticide application or yeah other pollutants like microplastics I think at one point she mentioned someone wanted to do a experiment on the effects of some of these chemicals in animals and it was really hard for them to find a control group because so many they were just in all of the animals and I heard like a similar thing being said about microplastics and people and that it's it would actually be really hard to study the effects of microplastics and have a control group because it's it's just that broad. So
0: uh something that I found as a major takeaway um and I found that 60 years later it's still an incredibly good point. So it's definitely stood the test of time that continued overconsumption and overproduction to satisfy that overconsumption, um particularly by people like here in North America, has led to continually using really harmful pesticides and other chemicals really intensely. And it seems as though we haven't really learned very much in these 60 years because there's still so much pollution occurring and still so much use of pesticides and in like industrial farming. And the idea that we've engineered this overconsumption and that's tied so much to how capitalism functions and like encourages us to overconsume. I thought was a really really powerful point that she made and the idea that we should probably be scaling that back was a very good point in 1962 and it and still is in 2022. yeah i think i
3: enjoyed having read the book but it was kind of tough to read because it does feel like this kind of repetitive like list of just all the ways in which pesticides and insecticides are absolutely devastating the planet and different species Something that I think I really took away, though, from reading it was kind of applying it to the idea of precautionary principle, which we see in kind of the environmental studies realm, our um, environmental governance realm, and just this idea that, you know, in employing new technologies, and I don't just mean like gadget technologies, but chemicals used for things like pesticides um, are also technology, of course, and I think, you know, we start using these technologies without fully actually using any kind of precaution in terms of what the widespread effects of them will be. I know Carson talks quite a bit in the book about how little we understand about the ways that these chemicals interact when they're out in the environment. I just see that as something that's really upsetting because I don't think that our lack of precaution has really changed. Like we still have all these ideas of technologies that are going to come in and save us from environmental harm but we don't necessarily understand much about them. I do also want to note though that I understand why producers like farmers for example would turn to pesticides or sprays for saving their crops from pests because you know that's a direct impact on their livelihoods and especially if the government is not, you know, raising any flags about using any of these chemicals and people don't necessarily know that those are going to be so harmful. But yeah, I think we kind of maybe generally as a society need to work towards not having brand new technologies that we don't fully understand being our first resort when we come across a new environmental issue.
2: Yeah, and I think that point really ties back to something Hannah was mentioning earlier about, you know, we can't really find good ways to control and experiment for this because you know the way that we test things in laboratories in terms of how does this react with with skin in a hermetically sealed room how does this interact with like a population of 50 mice if we if we spray this one area it's very disconnected from the way the actual natural world works where organisms are interacting with each other where chemicals can move so freely through air and water and you know, things that might feel like they are safe from laboratory testing can completely change when they're applied in the real world. I think one of the other really important pieces for why this work um, was so critical was, you know, it's one thing to compile this compendium of, of all the problems with insecticides and pesticides and their application. And it's a very different challenge to talk about things that we could do better and alternatives to that. And I really appreciate, especially to forward some of the latter chapters, that there is some dedication to. If we didn't have these pesticides, what could we do to, you know, maintain our food production? And Carson does talk about alternative methods, from you know using other benign insects to eat pests, to you know relying on other animals that are capable of controlling pest populations. And I think that really helps drive home this point that, you know, not only are these pesticides and pesticides at the time that she was seeing very dangerous and harmful to the environment and people, but also in some cases, like potentially even frivolous or convenient rather than, you know, unnecessary evil.
3: So why do you think this book was so impactful?
0: While I was reading, there'd be some passages that were like very technical and explaining like very particular chemical and biological processes, and then At the end of a lot of the chapters, she'll do almost like a question to the reader where she brings you back into the more figurative language and into the prose and into making it sound less like a like a paper, like a scientific paper and more like almost a piece of poetry or at the very least, um, like a piece that's speaking directly to the audience in a more um, colloquial way. And so I thought that was a really interesting thing, and like those questions at the end, or the way that the last little paragraph would be supposed to regalvanize the reader based on what you just read in that chapter, I thought that was really interesting, and a really helpful way to keep people wanted and engaged. And the writing was just so beautiful, and like that first chapter is just so like beautiful, and it's it sounds like a poem. So the silent spring that she sets up in the in the. First chapter is almost speculative fiction she describes this really beautiful idyllic town somewhere in the united states and and all of the various flora and fauna that are there and then she goes through how it used to be a buzz and now it's gone silent but then the plot twist is that that town is not a real specific town but is like widespread throughout the continent in particular and throughout the u.s because of what has silenced everything and all the natural beauty that was around. And she then just says that she's going to explain why the spring has been silenced. And that answers all the various pesticides and chemicals she explains throughout the book.
2: I think the last piece that I want to talk about, about, you know, why the book really landed for a lot of people was the very human dimensions that are given to a crisis that we often think about in you know purely broad ecological terms or in very economic terms and there's one specific part that like really stuck with me after I read it and uh, in it she talks about uh, squirrels and specifically hones in on this just brutal imagery of a squirrel death as a result of exposure to pesticide and I'll quote directly from it the head and neck were outstretched, and the mouth often contained dirt, suggesting that the dying animal had been biting at the ground. Which I think is just like a really sickening image, and and it very much left me with like a pit in my gut to think about, you know, these animals of like I love to see running around, and just this very evocative and and image laden sort of way to talk about squirrel deaths and something that could have been presented as a pure statistic of, you know, here are the number of carcasses we've found and there's a relationship to something that feels very human in this connection we have with like the animals around us. And, and she knows that in her next line. By acquiescing in such an act that causes such suffering to a living creature, who among us is not diminished as a human being? It's a very moral question, and it really gets at an argument that you can rarely see in science communication, one that's very focused on our responsibility as people and, you know, the core of of ethics that is often lost in, in academic work.
3: I appreciated in terms of science communication in this book that it did combine some really staggering statistics. Like, I found, you know, numbers that we reported about bird deaths related to pesticide use or fish death i am obsessed with salmon as anyone who knows me knows and reading about the total loss of certain salmon runs was really devastating but i agree that it does combine it with this very it, it feels more tangible i think than just like reporting statistics as is often done in news or Um, Other forms of, or yeah, academic forms, I guess, of science communication. So along that line, what parts of her effective science communication do you see possibly being adapted nowadays to fit into more current forms of media, like tweets, podcasts like us, (laughs) um, or TikToks as examples?
2: Yeah, I think a lot about how some of our, our modern climate leaders do lean into this idea of a moral imperative to act on climate change and that being you know an additional angle to the environmental and economic pieces you often hear people talk about and
0: so one of the most controversial arguments included in the book is the challenge of modernism and capitalism carson describes the folly of the ethos that humanity can dominate nature shaping it to our whims and controlling it with impunity carson's depiction of nature is cyclical and interconnected our actions impacting one part of the ecosystem resonate throughout, up to humankind. The data she shares supports the claim, showing the impact of pesticide biomagnification and carcinogenic effect.
1: Carson's views challenged the predominant environmental view of the time, a modernist ideology that environmental challenges could be solved by technological solutions. It also challenged a predominant religious belief in America at the time that nature was subservient to mankind. As you might imagine, these views were not well-received by some.
0: Why do you think Silent Spring received so much criticism, keeping in mind its historical context and scientific context and, and all of that?
1: There were a lot of critiques that I saw reading around after I finished the book that were... Definitely more about her being a woman than like the content of the book. Uh, Edmund Diamond, who was uh, critiquing her work, says, quote, her arguments were more emotional than accurate um, and that the success of her book amounted to lucky timing and, quote, graceful prose. And my favorite was that the work is the, the book was described of being work of an era of shrill voices, which shrill is such a funny uh insult to me
0: with the um gendered language mixed with like not a fair critique I was reading that Ezra Taft Benson who is the secretary of agriculture um was quoted saying in in response to the book why a spinster with no children was so concerned about genetics as if that has like anything to do with the book um and it connects to what we were talking about earlier like she expressed such an intense moral imperative that we all have to take care of the planet and be concerned about pesticide use. And the only thing Ezra Taft Benson could focus on in terms of critique was like her capacity as an individual to reproduce. And it's just so sexist and so not an actual scientific critique or critique or engagement with the work itself and just focusing on her gender, not even her as an author or scientist or anything.
1: My favorite insult that I've seen was apparently thrown at her, quoted in an article, and I apologize. I don't remember who said this, but uh, "just bird lover."
2: Furthering on your point about your favorite uh, your favorite insults hurled um, brings me to my favorite conspiracy theorist uh, mentality around Silent Spring, which was the numerous accusations of Rachel Carson being a communist. Again, the era in which she is writing and releasing this work in 1962, just five or so years after, you know, the Red Scare and, you know, the era of McCarthyism, where being accused of being a communist was a big deal and could result in large consequences, despite the fact that the book, I don't recall at any point ever talking about who owns industry or any of the actual tenants of communism gets thrown into that camp of well this is communist ideology and i think this point is like a great segue into you know understanding how the attacks on silent spring and rachel carson really also reflect modern day anti-climate change um, rhetoric and i think one of the interesting parallels between the response to carson's work and uh, much of the anti-climate rhetoric we continue to see is um, opponents of the movement seeking to delegitimize and attack the publishers of information. In 1962, the publisher of Silent Spring and The New Yorker, uh, which produced the serialization of the book over that summer, Uh, both faced lawsuits for carrying that information. And now, uh, even all these years later, we continue to see that be a tactic that's employed. And if you're listening from Alberta, it might be familiar to you from 2018's anti-oil public inquiry, which was actually funded by the government in Alberta, but which seeked to find a connection between foreign investment and anti-oil publications and sentiments that were being uh, put out into the public in what was a pretty clear attempt to delegitimize these organizations and claim some sort of conspiracy or ulterior motive. Um, But, you know, it's this attempt to rather than refute them on the grounds of the scientific impact or the way in which um, the the trade-offs are being considered but to instead really seek to end that conversation and almost bully institutions into being silent on this concept and i think that remains a powerful tool in the arsenal of anti-environmentalists
0: silent spring was immediately impactful Partly because one of the readers might be a familiar name, John F. Kennedy from the film Transformers 3 Dark of the Moon. He asked the Science Advisory Committee to investigate, and they confirmed many of the findings in the book. In
1: 1963, Carson testified about the use of pesticides before a Senate subcommittee. Within a decade, DDT use was banned in the US. Although American companies would continue to produce the chemical domestically, for international export until the 1980s. Some even attribute the passing of the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts and the launch of the Environmental Protection Agency to the environmental awareness and passion emboldened by Silent Spring.
2: This passion continues to this day in the climate protests occurring around the world and the conservation movements that protect our natural areas.
3: For all of the strong research and writing in Silent Spring, there are a few noticeable gaps. So what are some of the weaknesses with Silent Spring that you've noticed?
1: The lack of, like, any sort of acknowledgement of Indigenous people in this book, and, like, Indigenous knowledge and stewarding of the land since time immemorial um, before modern I guess and commercial farming um, really took hold in the US this was really a point that made this book it just it made it really not withstand the test of time for me I obviously didn't read it when it came out in the 60s I was not alive it's really hard not to think the whole time you're reading it at least for me that there's this like giant elephant in the room called colonization that's just like completely left out (laughs) I think it would be awesome. Uh, Rachel Carson is not alive anymore, so she's not around to update the book, but um, yeah.
2: There is a moment in the book and she talks about, you know, who knows about the actual environmental impacts of an action more than a biologist in that community. And that to me feels like it's, you know, the thread of the idea of, Community-based monitoring and citizen science, and you know, very much the the complete extension of that thought is, who knows more about the actual impacts of an action than peoples that have thousands upon thousands of years of knowledge and understanding of the land they're on? And to my recollection, that that thread in the book doesn't really go anywhere. But I, like you said, I think the natural extension of that, and if this book were to be updated for modern day, I think that is one of the pieces that has evolved into hopefully this greater acknowledgement of the value of traditional knowledge.
3: Yeah I think I mean no I, I recognize that like this book was written 20 years before environmental justice as a movement was really <laughs> kickstarted, but there is just a total lack of like any kind of intersectional critical analysis of what's going on like in particular in the chapters where Rachel Carson is talking about the human or the impacts on humans, I guess, of the use of these chemicals. I think it would be really valuable to have, you know, at least some level of understanding or like some level of information provided about how, you know, our systems are in place in a way that puts certain people at higher risk and higher um, vulnerability to facing the um, harms and the like dangers posed by exposure to these chemicals. Unfortunately, there's so many examples of communities, in particular BIPOC communities or black indigenous and people of color.
2: I think the point about the lack of intersectionality is is so interesting because she almost calls herself out. And and this is a quote from page 13. This is an era of specialists, each of which sees his own problem and is unaware or intolerant of the larger frame into which it fits. First of all, very, very interesting use of his when talking about specialists. Um, but yeah, I think further to that point, we, and especially environmental movements of the time, really liked to dissect and silo problems into their respective categories and sciences. And Carson does acknowledge that being a problem. And I think, again, this field has very much evolved to beyond just intersecting. What we would now call natural sciences but into now evolving that into ideas of of sociology and femininity and continue to explore how our environment is so interconnected and as part of that requires a broader scale of understanding.
3: Silent Spring is one of the most influential books of all time. Bringing a critical environmental issue to light and resulting in the ban of DDT in the US and other jurisdictions. And beyond that, Carson laid much of the groundwork for modern environmental movements, including calling out industrialism and human dominion over nature as problematic to our well being.
0: Even now, Carson's work echoes in conservation efforts and climate protests. Issues like pollution remain major environmental issues. For example, plastic pollution has caused the threat of microplastics impacting humans.
1: And now, in the midst of a mass extinction event driven by human-induced climate change, the threat of a silent spring still feels as relevant as it did 60 years ago.
2: That's all the time we have for this week. We've been your hosts sonic lizzie hannah and sarah thanks for listening
0: tara informa is a production of cjsr 88.5 fm and all our content is created by a team of volunteers huge shout out to sonic patel for researching and writing this episode and huge shout out to sonic sarah and hannah for participating in the book club this episode was produced by hannah cunningham you can reach us for comments or questions via email to at tara@cjsr.com. Or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Tara Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, TaraInforma.ca. Catch you next week,
1: week right, right here, here on, on Tara, Tara, Tara Informa Informa. <laughs>